From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. During the Trump presidency, donations to the ACLU of Colorado poured in, doubling the civil rights group's budget. There have been growing pains, a CPR News Colorado Sun investigation reveals. The ACLU suffered a bruising defeat at the state capitol as it tried to limit arrests for low-level crimes. And during the debate, some opponents say they were bullied. CPR's Allison Sherry and the Sun's Jesse Paul take us into their investigation. Then the state Supreme Court still has to say yes, but how will the new congressional map affect who represents you in the U.S. House? That's in the latest episode of Purplish. And later. Happy birthday, dear Charlie. Denver's Charlie Burrell, who broke the color barrier in symphony orchestras, turns 101. Need more reusable bags to get you ready for Colorado's ban on plastic bags? There are several can't-get-them-anywhere-else options to pick from when you start your membership today. Well-made and sturdy, these CPR-branded thank-you gifts are fun and functional ways to show off your support for unbiased news and inspiring music. And you should be proud. As a member, you help make great radio happen. Donate at CPR.org and thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The ACLU of Colorado has not shied away from big fights in recent years at the state legislature and in courtrooms. But the organization is at a turning point and just recently lost its entire public policy team. CPR's Allison Sherry and the Colorado Sun's Jesse Paul spent the summer digging into the organization and join us to talk about their reporting. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hi. The headline at CPR.org and at The Sun reads, The ACLU is more powerful than ever at the state capitol, but at what cost? It asks. Jesse, expound on that for us. Sure. So the ACLU of Colorado has really been this incredibly successful organization at the Capitol in recent years. But in the most recent legislative session that just ended uh, over the summer, they had a pretty big loss. It was this bill to prevent people from being arrested for large, a large slate of crimes, uh, except for kind of the most serious ones like murder or, or serious assault. Um, it failed. And along the way, it really upset a lot of lawmakers and people in law enforcement community over how the ACLU tried to use its tactics to get the bill passed. And it seemed like there was this big shift and strategy going on behind the scenes. So Allison and I both noticed this and we wanted to look into how they got so powerful and what happened that they upset so many people. Um, you know, the cost that we were talking about really isn't a financial one. It's this cost to their mission, uh, maybe to their reputation and maybe even to their future goals at the Capitol. Hey, Allison, say more about the ACLU's track record leading up to this at the state Capitol. Right. I mean, he just talked about the loss. In recent years, they've been roaringly successful there. They've passed major police reform legislation, a death penalty repeal. They passed a bill requiring people in jail to be seen by a judge within 48 hours, which is a really big deal in rural areas. They've become people who play to win, and they usually do win. Um, And so with this success has come massive growth in both their budget and their power. Can you describe that growth for us, Jesse? Sure. So we looked into federal tax filings uh, for the ACLU of Colorado, and the numbers were really eye-popping. The organization's revenue doubled to $2.8 million in 2017. 
up from 1.4 million in 2014. Um, and, and, you know, that cor- correlates with the president, uh, Donald Trump's election in 2016. But and the increase was really driven by donations. If you look at the filings, you could tell it was it was people giving more money. Um, but it wasn't just money. You know, in 2018, the Democratic takeover of state government really poured rocket fuel onto the ACLU of Colorado's ascent. And then last year, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis kind of brought to the mainstream these policies that the ACLU of Colorado had been pushing for in the background. So, so a lot of people were calling for them now. And this has meant more money, more clout. Allison, one source in your story likens the more recent tactics of the ACLU of Colorado to those of the NRA, the National Rifle Association. That caught my attention in the piece. Yeah. And just to clarify, it's a statement about their grassroots organization, not about the politics. You know, the NRA, though, has been famously amazing at organizing people on a dime to protest, write letters, show up in the halls of Congress to defeat gun legislation. And that comparison is is something that the ACLU does not find offensive. You know, a few years ago, The national group said it themselves, again, as a reference to the sort of grassroots mobilization that the NRA has been has found so effective in the in the past. And that the ACLU wants to harness itself. Uh, No doubt that outside events, Allison, on the national scene have helped shape the ACLU's direction, right? Yes. And, you know, a lot of people listening may remember the ACLU of yore, the the group that defended the Nazis in Skokie, Illinois in the 70s, where free speech was the core value. And I think the current ACLU would say they still care about those values. But something interesting happened in 2017 that changed the way the national organization looks at free speech. In Virginia, the state chapter there defended some white supremacist rights to march in Charlottesville. And as you know, that infamous rally turned deadly in the end. And after that, the national group had this reckoning conversation and decided that representing those white supremacists' right to protest was the wrong decision and didn't line up with the organization's core values of racial justice. And so they changed the rules nationally. If a state organization wants to defend a group that doesn't align with those values, it can do so, but it has to go through a couple of internal committees first for permission. Now, the ACLU of Colorado points out they just went through all of that and wrote an amicus, amicus, amicus I can say it, amicus <laughs> brief on behalf of a former Cherry Creek High School kid who posted something anti-Semitic on Snapchat and got in trouble. So I hear in this a shift towards racial justice for the ACLU. Does that capture it, Jesse? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a maybe broadening of the organization's mission somewhat. You know, they're trying to be more offensive than defensive. I think when people think of the ACLU, they think of this organization that, you know, goes around suing people or filing lawsuits or defending people in lawsuits, uh, you know, to try and promote free speech or, or First Amendment rights. And, you know, this also comes, this, this broadening of mission comes as they have a new executive director in Colorado and Deborah Richardson. She just started in March. You know, she said they're really pushing forward as opposed to just holding the line. Here's Richardson. We are very clear that the goal is to dismantle these systemic injustices. Those who have been disenfranchised in this state, they deserve this power. They deserve this advocacy because no one else is speaking up for them in the way that they need to to be heard. So that's how they see themselves fitting in and advocating in Colorado. As you reported this story, the entire public policy team resigned. What have you learned about that? Yeah, it was unexpected. Um, Denise Maez, Rebecca Wallace, Elizabeth Epps departed all in the same two-week period um, uh, in earlier in September. Denise, who was the director, said she was proud of her time at the organization and her accomplishments there, but she ultimately wanted to go a different direction than the ACLU is going now. Anything you'd add, Jesse? 
You know, what I can tell you is that these three women who left were really responsible for the ACLU's gains at the Capitol in recent years. They built, you know, a lot of capital at the Capitol along the way. And I can tell you that the political world is really buzzing about their departure. And the ACLU board chair, Dr. Maurice Scott, uh, sent us an email in the middle of this reporting, denied that there had been any sort of strategy change at the ACLU, that the organization still devoted to criminal justice reform. But I guess what's unclear, you know, to Jesse and I now is who's going to carry that mantle with all these big brains leaving the organization at the same time, months away from the start of the legislative session. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us. CPR crime and justice reporter Allison Sherry and Colorado Sun political reporter Jesse Paul. You can read their joint investigation into the ACLU of Colorado at CPR.org. Colorado's new congressional map is now in the hands of the state Supreme Court, which must sign off on the eight districts. As that map has come together, Purplish has been keeping us informed. That's CPR's politics podcast. This time, let's join hosts Megan Verlee and Benta Berkland from CPR's public affairs team. I think a lot of people are curious about what this map ultimately means for the state's political makeup and the members we're going to be sending to Washington, D.C. Well, I think one thing to know is that they are very likely the members we have right now in the seven existing seats because their political balance didn't change a whole lot. Uh, This map, the four seats held by Democrats right now still are four relatively safe Democratic seats or Mm -hmm. to very strongly Democratic seats. The three seats that have Republicans in them right now are all safely Republican in this map. Now, the new district, the eighth district, was drawn as a very swingy district. There's a tiny, tiny lean toward Democrats. Uh, and so that's going to be the district that all eyes are on in the next election. So it sounds like Colorado's current members of Congress all have a really strong chance of holding those seats. But the one person who looks like he could have a tougher reelection is Democratic Representative Ed Perlmutter. He's in the 7th Congressional District. And under this new map, that district includes all of Jefferson County and then a whole bunch of Central Mountain Counties. Mm. But the district, even though it still leans Democratic, it's not as much as it currently does. Yeah, this map that they approved, it does look fairly recognizable to Mm -hmm. the current congressional map, except for two districts that really changed a lot. Uh, The 5th District, which used to have a bunch of mountain counties, is now really just the west side of El Paso County, Colorado Springs and its suburbs. And then those mountain counties and a few extras got put into the 7th District. I think that's going to be really interesting for Perlmutter. He's this really constituent-focused kind of congressman, and he suddenly has new constituents with really different concerns than those suburbs he's been representing. And let's briefly touch on Colorado's newest district, District 8 that we had talked about. It'll sit north of Denver along the I-25 corridor, and it includes parts of Commerce City, Greeley, Broomfield, parts of Arvada. And this would be by far the most competitive uh, congressional seat in the state. Exactly. And I think it's pretty notable that through this whole process, almost every map they looked at, I I have to confess I didn't follow every single Mm -hmm. map, had the 8th district there. And I think that really speaks to the fact that there's been so much growth on that northern Front Range corridor that it just doesn't feel logical to put a a new district anywhere else because that's where the, the new people are. I'd say two things stand out. We've talked about it being the most competitive and then also it would be the most diverse district in the state, close to 40 percent of the population identifying as Hispanic. 
Yeah, there were some groups that were hoping to draw like a majority minority district. Uh, and this one doesn't quite achieve that. But uh, between uh, the Latino residents and residents of other races, um, it is almost equally split between whites and, and people of color, which I think could could make for some interesting electoral politics. Um, to go back really briefly on the competitive point, mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. They sort of followed history on this because the last time Colorado got a new district, the seventh, which was like 20 years ago, they drew that to be a very competitive district. So I think there's this tradition of if you get a new district, try to politically balance it and then it let it shake out over time. Yeah. And I think depending on the outcome, obviously, of the election, this eighth congressional district could give the state a 4-4 split in the congressional delegation. Republicans and Democrats. Right. If, if a Republican Ooh. wins. And I talked to a Democratic political strategist, Ian Silveri, to get his take on the map and everything. And I'm very curious yes. to hear what he had to say. Well, his quote is, as a partisan operative, I would have liked six safe Democratic seats, which makes sense. That makes sense. But Ian said in terms of realistic outcomes that honored the state constitution, respected communities of interest, created a fair map. He said, quote, I think this gets pretty close. Huh. That is an interesting take because uh, as the commission was going through all of its work very late Tuesday night, I was, of course, also obsessively on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And Twitter was full of uh, Democrats who were increasingly agitated by what this map was going to look like. Uh, You know, people saying, come on, we've got a Democratic governor, two Democratic senators, all the state offices are held by Democrats. How can we end up with a delegation that is evenly split or close to evenly split? Like, they really feel the Democrats gave up some power by going to a process that favors you know, a very politically middle-of-the-road map. I mean, we may not get a 4-4 split, but... That's a good yeah, caveat. But, but to your point, yeah, that that it's even a possibility. And I've heard you mention this point. Oh, yeah. So I have an obsession about this, which I actually vented on Twitter while I was watching all these people uh, being mad about the map. Actually, I saw that. <laughs> and then you said... I may bring this up in purplish, so I was expecting you to bring this up. Well, I also asked if anybody could prove me wrong, and nobody did. So now I'm going to run through my theory, which is just simply that Democrats who are mad that there are not more Democratic safe congressional districts in Colorado need to move out of Denver. Hmm. Uh, Because if you look at the political makeup of these districts, Democrats in Denver have a 57-point advantage over Republicans. It's crazy. Double the Republican advantage in the most Republican district Mm. on this map. So basically, Democrats are throwing away a huge amount of electoral strength by packing into a city that always gets put in one district. Um, So frankly, if, if you are a listener who is a Democrat who wants to see more Democratic congressmen, either you're going to have to convince the redistricting commission in 10 years to break Denver in half or more, or you're going to have to convince a lot of Democrats to move to the suburbs and rural areas. Democrats move to the eastern plains from Denver, maybe. I mean, I would say it was never a discussion to split Denver. And one of the top criteria under the state constitution is to keep cities together. And I talked to Plenty of Democrats from Denver who would take great issue with, you know, separating the state capital. Oh, exactly. Even if it meant more Democratic seats. Well, yeah, think about it. You've got the mayor of Denver who's powerful, who wants his city to stay whole. You've got Diana DeGette, who probably does not want her district split. And you do have past court precedent, even though there's a lot of argument about whether this new process has to take that into account. So, yeah, it's there's a Denver problem for Democrats on really almost any map.
They did six rounds of voting, and there was quite a bit of downtime between the votes because nonpartisan staff had to tally the ballots and see. Yeah, there were these complicated ranked-choice ballots. That's right. And so during the the downtime, sometimes it was like a half hour, I had fun seeing them on Zoom, making small talk, talking about their exercise routines, the TV shows they watch. Um, Gosh, a lot of them are going to, or some of them run marathons, and then even going into like how many siblings they had. You're one of seven. All right, where are you in the birth order, Simon? I have to ask. Youngest. Got take a youngest. guess. Venture a guess. You're the youngest, Simon. Huh? You're the youngest. What's Bill's guess? I don't know. I'm one of seven, too. So now I have to think about which of my brothers you most remind me of. <laughs> my youngest. Yeah, I think probably that's right. My youngest brother. Oh, you guys, You guys are right. <laughs> I kind of love that because it just reminds you, these are 12 volunteers. They're not elected officials. They didn't run for this. Like, they're human beings who have put in sort of an inhuman effort trying to get to this agreement. And you could really, you could feel both like their concern that they might not get there and kind of as the evening went on, tempers got frayed and people said some pretty snippy things to each other. But also like their great relief that whatever happened, this was like their last night that they were going to have to do something like this. It really does point to the dedication of this commission. Uh, we've we've made calls from the hospital, funerals, side of the road while we're sick, <laughs> with screaming children. Uh, we've we've gone to great lengths to be here. So uh, kudos to all of you for the, just the dedication to it all. I was surprised to hear a number of them say they would do this all again. That actually shocks me. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, this was not easy. Uh, I was also watching uh, a, a lot of this, and I was really amazed by how much they shifted around from from round to round of voting. So in the first ballot, um, one map, the, the actually the one that was picked finally, got seven votes, which was one away from becoming the, the final map. And we thought, oh, maybe this is going to be kind of fast. Mm-hmm. And then the next round of ballots comes, and they're all over the map. And then, or the maps, I should say. (laughs) Figuratively Uh, and literally. Exactly. And each round, like they would kind of, they would explain their votes and they would try to persuade each other and people would just keep moving around. There was pretty late, I think actually maybe it was even like the final official ranked ballot. You had four for one map, four for another map and four for a third map. And it was just this moment where I think everybody saw that result and was like, oh my God, what is happening? I know. Yes. And I think a lot of the discussion echoed things we'd heard over months of deliberation. So commissioners weighing how best to represent rural areas, mm-hmm. ensure representation for different racial and ethnic communities, and whether to really reimagine much different political lines than we currently have by creating a Southern Colorado district. I was actually kind of surprised to see that that Southern district was still in contention really all the way through the the rounds of voting. I mean, at such a late stage, you would have thought they would have uh, like one unifying vision and you didn't see that uh, until the very, very end. I remember a moment And it was a little after 11 p.m. And the commission started considering a map that we had not prepared anything on yet. (laughs) Oh, my God. We had not even thought about that. And I just remember thinking, please, please, please don't adopt this map. Just for my personal sanity, I did not want to be up all night reworking the story. So my fingers were crossed. and I'm like, oh, my gosh, do we need to kind of start another Google Doc right now? 
I know. So a little little pulling back the, the curtain on journalism. Not that we have any like stake in the game, except that when we plan our coverage, we really want it to happen the way we hope it will. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, and I will say in the name of good coverage, uh, that final map that they sort of considered for a moment and then gave up on would have created three competitive districts. Uh, so I actually had a little like, wow, that would be some crazy races to cover feeling. That would have been fun. It would have been. And at points, it did really look like they didn't impasse. And we heard from the commissioners all along, though, that they wanted to approve a map. And they ultimately did select the map that was closest to the default that nonpartisan staff plan that would have been submitted if they didn't reach an agreement. Something that was really clear watching those final minutes of the meeting, like the last 10, 15 minutes as the clock ticked down to midnight, was that it wasn't like they had this massive breakthrough and suddenly the 11 commissioners who ended up voting for that final plan just fell in love with it. It was much more a moment where they're like, ooh, we are not going to get to agreement through debate, here's a plan that is very similar to what's going to get adopted by default if we don't come to agreement. So let's all vote on it and put our stamp on it to show that this process worked. Even though it's not explicitly a failure if the staff plan was ultimately submitted, we heard from a lot of commissioners that they felt it was their duty in fulfilling what voters had intended for the commission to vote on a map. And so I think you're right. They did feel a lot of pressure there. And They only had minutes left. Yeah, and backers of this way of doing things were so excited when they got to that final map. I was chatting with one in in, uh, direct messages, and he's like, look at this. Republicans, unaffiliated, Democrats, they came together on this map. Nobody else in the country can do this. Like, I mean, this was was a, a real football spike for people who wanted to see this process change. And I'll be it'll be I think we'll have fun watching around the country as other states are approving their maps and just seeing how things go. Yeah. I mean, remember, in Colorado until now, in most other states, this is lawmakers and party operatives doing this in back rooms, Um, you know, to to get to a map in public, even if it was at times a messy process, uh, is, is a real departure. And we heard commissioners say that going across the state, Through all these public hearings, they saw communities they'd never been to. They heard from citizens about how people view their communities, and they learned so much. There were more than 5,000 online comments, more than 40 hearings. Unaffiliated Commissioner Jolie Bronner talked exactly to your point about how different this transparent process is compared to the alternative when you have state lawmakers drawing maps. She said, when you think of like smoky caucuses, those are gone. And I feel like that's such an amazing piece to be part of it. And I feel like I'm part of a community. And in reading all of the comments, all over 5,000 of them, um, I would still keep reading them. I think it was so amazing how involved everyone was in this process. And I think it was really fantastic that we got to be part of this first group that had the public more involved in this process than they've ever been before. And I think that's something we should really celebrate. That was something that definitely stood out to me, that despite the countless hours and, yes, sometimes some really difficult conversations, how many commissioners said they would do this all again? I am shocked by that. Just shocked. (laughs) Now, they might not actually even be done uh, because the next step in this is the map goes to the state Supreme Court and groups that don't like it, that don't feel that it landed on the the right places or fulfilled the, the constitutional criteria, they can challenge it. 
Should the justices agree with any of those challenges, the map goes right back to the commission. They go right back on Zoom and we get to do even more of this. You'll get a bonus, 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 purplish episode. Whee! Public affairs editor Megan Verlee and public affairs reporter Benta Berkland with Purplish, CPR's politics podcast. Find it everywhere you get your podcasts. Just a few examples. NPR One, Apple, and at CPR.org. When we come back, celebrating the Jackie Robinson of classical music. Robots moved from science fiction to reality a few decades ago, and now they're an ever-increasing presence in the workplace. How does that shape the economy? Thursday night, David Brancaccio of Marketplace and I, Avery Lill from Colorado Matters, discuss automation in the workplace at the closing keynote session of Denver Startup Week, focusing on everything entrepreneurial in Denver. Events are in person and online. Schedule at denverstartupweek.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and happy birthday to Charlie Burrell. The Denver bassist and luminary turns 101 today. We were at his centennial celebration last year, where we met Burrell's cousin, jazz pianist Pernell Steen. Happy birthday, dear Charlie. Happy birthday. Today is an historic event because we are celebrating the 100th birthday of one of the most preeminent musicians who ever played, Charles Edward Burrell Sr. He is known as the Jackie Robinson of music. He broke the barriers in classical music and was the first visible African-American to play with the symphony orchestra when he came to Denver in 1949. He is also the last living musician who played at the historic Rossonian Lounge on Five Points in Denver, Colorado, whereby he played for the likes of Sarah Vaughn, Ella Fitzgerald, to name but a few, Nat King Cole. Charlie! Happy birthday! I prefer to think of him as the lone eagle because he soars where eagles soar and eagles leave others in their wake. You heard there from Denver musician and Charlie Burrell's cousin, Pernell Steen. Well, a little further back, this was in 2006, I sat down with Burrell as he was working on his memoirs. When you were young, you called your bass your Linus Blanket, uh, which I I guess implies it was always with you. Uh, Every step of the way from the time I was 12. How did you first find the bass? I didn't find the bass. The bass found me. Uh, I think one Friday afternoon in... uh, junior high school, the teacher came in, the music teacher came in the room, and we were bored to tears, obviously, about three o'clock. You know what that is on Friday? My, you know. And uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what, we have uh, an opening, and he said, band, okay? And he says, we, does anyone like, would like to play an instrument? You know, and I didn't know anything. Yeah, I raised my hand. So he took me in the band room, and uh, he looked in the corner, and there was a big aluminum brown bass. And he said, well, Charlie, that's all we have. And I said, I'll take it. I grabbed it, and I haven't looked back. And that was only about then, about four foot ten. You four foot ten. Did that make the bass taller than you were? Oh, much taller. I used to have to stand on a Coca-Cola box to, to, to get to the bass. When you finally moved from Detroit to Denver, mm-hmm. you joined what was then the Denver Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. and you were one of the first <clears throat> black members. Yes. What was the reception you got? 
I'll put it this way, it was rather cool, but uh, in a gentlemanly fashion, and lady fashion, you know, they accepted me only because of the fact that the conductor, whose name was Saul Caston, was an upright, honest man, and he would allow nothing short of people treating me like people. I never socialized with anyone in the orchestra. That was impossible because of the fact that they had their lives, which were uh, outside uh, Anglo, and I had mine, which is outside in those days, which was uh, black. And so consequently, and when I left the hall, that was it. You probably don't know how the reception that you get when a person is not that too enthused about meeting you. They would say, oh, how'd you do? You know, how are you? I wonder if that was more or less frustrating than just overt racism. I mean, it's one thing to get a, a, a cold, icy reception. And it's another thing for people to be blunt and say, this is how I feel about you. No, that didn't bother me at all. My, mom, my mother had prepared me for that. Okay, She had prepared me thoroughly for that. <laughs> and so consequently, I had no emotions. I mean, it didn't matter to me. All I wanted to do was play my bass. And I was lucky in the fact that the whole bass section was in my corner. So that was my big plus because all of them in the bass section were my good friends. I wonder how all your experience in jazz informed your classical performing. Oh, because I kept happy. I was playing jazz four, five, six nights a week. Because in those days, they only had uh, one or two concerts in Denver. And uh, one concert was on uh, one night when we played. And I'd finish the concert at 9.30 and be on the job with the Arrows Trio at 10 o'clock. Are you implying that you weren't happy playing the classical? Oh, no, no. I was profoundly happy. But what kept me sane was the fact of playing good jazz with people who had no hang-ups, okay? Symphony musicians were a little strange, and still are. They have, they have this thing about them, and about looking down their nose at everyone else that plays another instrument. And uh, that was uh, the exposure I had with them. But with the jazz, it was not like that. Charlie Burrell there, speaking with me in 2006. Today, he turns 101. Rather than sing happy birthday... Let's listen to this archive recording featuring Burrell on bass with the Ralph Sutton Trio at the Lakeside Amusement Park Jazz Club. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.